I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode was made possible by Mott and Bow, the perfect fitting jeans that hug you in all the right places. Today's case was brought to my attention by a Murderish listener who wishes to remain anonymous. During and after this episode, you're going to hear promos for some true crime podcasts. Somewhere in the middle of this episode, you'll hear promos for podcasts Crawl Space and A Date with Dateline. After the episode is over, you'll hear a podcast promo for I Said Goddamn, or ISGD for short. Have your subscribe trigger finger ready when you hear the promos. I want to say thank you to the following Patreon supporters. Misty Vance, Amber, Allison Zercher, Amy Burkhart, and Pamela Hopkins. I appreciate your support so much, guys. Lastly, before we get into this case, I also want to remind you that some friends and I are hosting a live show in October of this year, about a month and a half from now. The True Crime Variety Show will feature stand-up comedy, fun interviews, other live entertainment, and mixing and mingling with some of your favorite L.A.-based true crime podcasters after the show. Clear your calendar for the True Crime Variety Show, happening the evening of Friday, October 18th, 2019, at the Federal Bar in North Hollywood. I'm really looking forward to seeing some of you there. Tickets are on sale now at eventbrite.com. That's eventbrite.com. Just search True Crime Variety Show. You can also find details of the show in the Murderish Facebook group, marked as an announcement at the top of the feed. Be sure to follow Murderish on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter so you don't miss out on show updates. 
Get your tickets soon before they run out. Now, let's dive into today's case. Wasion, a city located within Fulton County in the state of Ohio, was named in tribute to a Native American chief who lived there during the 1800s. Many Wasion residents flocked to the town, seeking to escape the hustle and bustle of larger, nearby cities. Today, the city boasts a low crime rate and an environment ripe for raising a family. Trees line many of the streets, and the town has plenty of beautiful parks. Parts of the town are very rural, with acres upon acres of cornfields. No matter how safe a town might be, danger can lurk anywhere. The summer of 2016 would mark a very dark time for the town of Wasion. On July 22, 2016, around 6 o'clock in the evening, a body was discovered off County Road 7. The body was in a freshly dug grave in a cornfield in a rural area of Wasion, Ohio. The body, discovered by law enforcement, was that of 20-year-old college student Sierra Joggin. Sierra had been missing for three days and was last seen alive by her boyfriend of seven years, Josh Kolosinski. After visiting with Josh on the afternoon of July 19th, Sierra got on her purple bike and began riding home on County Road 6. Sierra was headed back to her grandparents' house, where she lived at the time. Josh accompanied Sierra, riding his motorcycle alongside her to make sure she made it home safely. The two of them lived about seven miles apart. During their ride down the country road, Josh snapped a picture of Sierra, who smiled back at the camera. At some point during their ride, Sierra encouraged Josh to turn around and ride home. She was fine riding the rest of the way by herself. Sierra was an independent young woman, so it was no surprise that she insisted on riding the rest of the way home by herself. The couple kissed and then parted ways. That would be the last time anyone would see Sierra alive. That photo that Josh took during their bike ride would be the last photo taken of the young woman before she was brutally murdered. The day she went missing, Sierra told her mom, Sheila, that she was going to visit with her boyfriend. The two said goodbye to each other, having no idea of the terrible encounter that was to occur later that evening. Josh and Sierra exchanged a few text messages after parting ways that afternoon. At some point, Josh said Sierra stopped responding. He tried calling her numerous times up until about 10 o'clock that evening. Josh's calls went straight to Sierra's voicemail. Worried, Josh called Sierra's mom around 10.15 p.m., asking if she had heard from Sierra. She hadn't heard from her daughter, and now everyone was worried. Sierra's family and Josh got in their cars and began looking for Sierra. 
After searching for about an hour and turning up nothing, they returned home. Sierra's mom began posting on social media, asking if anyone had seen her daughter. Soon after, Sheila called police and reported her daughter missing. Later that evening, Sheila received a call from a neighbor telling her that County Road 6 was blocked off by law enforcement. The neighbor believed the road blockage and law enforcement activity may have something to do with reports that Sierra had gone missing. Sheila raced down to the blocked-off road, but law enforcement told her she couldn't enter the area and they wouldn't provide her any details as to why they were there. Sheila and her family, extremely worried by this time, began calling hospitals in the area, asking if anyone matching Sierra's description had been admitted. One hospital staff member in Detroit, Michigan, about 100 miles away from Wasion, told Sierra's family that an unidentified woman had been admitted and the woman matched Sierra's description. Reportedly, the unidentified woman had jumped out of a moving car and was badly hurt. She apparently had escaped a scary situation. Even after learning the woman was badly hurt, Sierra's family hoped the unidentified woman was her. They were desperate to find her. Sierra's family was told the woman had a piercing in her navel and a scar on her lower leg just like Sierra. The lead appeared to be very promising, but Sierra's family would have their hopes crushed. They eventually learned that the unidentified woman was not Sierra. Tara Ice, Sierra's aunt, said after getting the terrible news that the family is in complete shock and utterly lost. Sierra's mom said depression sank in at that moment. I'm such a jeans and t-shirt kind of girl. I once asked a friend if I could slap some sequins on my jeans and call them formal enough to wear to her wedding. Shockingly, that didn't go over in my favor. The point is, I know a great pair of jeans when I find them, so let me tell you about my newest jeans obsession. Mott & Bow is a kick-ass jeans company that makes high-quality jeans in their own factory. And let me tell you, these jeans rock. I just got my second pair, and this time I went with Mott & Bow's high-rise skinny bond jeans with slits over each knee. I rocked these jeans recently on a date night out with my husband. I paired them with my favorite band t-shirt and some stilettos, and I felt like a million bucks. Ladies, you know how a high-end pair of yoga pants suck you in in all the right places? Yeah, that's what Mott & Bow jeans do, and they're comfortable at the same time. These jeans keep their shape for days without washing. Mott & Bow offers different styles and colors of jeans for women and men at such a fair price. If you're unsure of which size to order, take advantage of Mott & Bow's Home Try-On program. Order two pairs of jeans, only pay for one, then return the pair that doesn't fit using the prepaid return label. Trust me, I am a total jeans snob, and these have become my new favorite. If you're ready to rock jeans that hug you in all the right places, go to mottenbow.com and use promo code MURDERISH for 15% off for first-time buyers. That's M-O-T-T-A-N-D-B-O-W.com and use code MURDERISH for 15% off. A 
A massive search party was assembled, with private citizens and members of law enforcement spreading out to search for Sierra. Many of them walked hand in hand, combing the fields of tall corn stalks in search of Sierra. The FBI was brought in. Drones, helicopters, and cadaver dogs were used to aid in the search efforts. A nearby pond was completely drained, but turned up nothing. It was learned later that the reason law enforcement had blocked off County Road 6 the evening Sierra went missing was because her purple bike was discovered abandoned in a cornfield. It was nighttime and a member of law enforcement, with his flashlight on, noticed a reflection coming off the bike's safety reflector lights. When he walked closer, he saw a bike laying down in the cornfield. Also found near her bike was a screwdriver, a fuse box, a pair of men's and women's sunglasses, a motorcycle helmet, and a sock. The helmet and sock were both stained with blood. This discovery prompted local police to call in the FBI for help, and the search efforts to find Sierra were ramped up. The scene near Sierra's abandoned bike looked a lot like a struggle had taken place there. Corn stalks were broken down and laying on the ground. Tire tracks were also noted in the area. The search for Sierra continued in earnest, and three days after she went missing, a raised mound of dirt was noticed in a cornfield. A cadaver dog was brought in and appeared to hit on the area, meaning that it sensed human remains. Law enforcement began digging. They had found Sierra. Sierra's body was buried in a deep hole and found handcuffed with her ankles taped and bound to her wrists with rope. A yellow object had been placed inside of her mouth. Sierra was found not far from where she lived, on a road just over from the road she had been bike riding on the afternoon she went missing. An autopsy was performed and confirmed that Sierra's death was caused by asphyxiation from a large plastic bag that had been placed around her head and attached to an object that was placed inside her mouth. The object in her mouth restricted her airway and resulted in her death. No evidence of sexual assault was found during the autopsy. Born on February 11, 1996 in Sylvania, Ohio, Sierra Catherine Joggin was a thinly built, attractive, and intelligent young woman with brown eyes and light brown hair. Sierra, nicknamed C by some of her friends, was an all-American girl who was described by loved ones as funny, spunky, adventurous, and confident. Sierra played volleyball in high school and was just beginning her life as an adult. After graduating from Evergreen High School with honors, Sierra enrolled in the University of Toledo, where she made the dean's list. Sierra was studying business and was about to be a junior at the time she went missing. Sierra and her boyfriend Josh met when they were just seven years old and had remained friends since then. The two began dating during their freshman year of high school. After high school, Josh attended Bowling Green State University, while Sierra went on to the University of Toledo. The couple spoke about getting married, but Sierra wanted to finish college first. Sierra's parents, Sheila Vakalik and Tom Joggin, had much to be proud of. 
Sierra was a member of the university's business fraternity and described as being full of life and appreciative of every opportunity presented to her. After Sierra went missing, her boyfriend Josh became a suspect right away. He was the last person to see her alive, and of course, it's not uncommon for the victim's romantic partner to be investigated. Perhaps they'd had an argument and things went awry from there. Tire tracks from what looked to be a motorcycle were found in the cornfield near the location where Sierra's bike was discovered. It was well known that Josh owned a motorcycle. He was riding it the evening Sierra went missing. Josh was questioned by investigators, who asked him if he was in possession of his motorcycle helmet. Given that a bloody motorcycle helmet had been recovered in the area near Sierra's bike, investigators wanted to see if Josh's helmet was missing. Josh, however, was able to show them his motorcycle helmet, and ultimately, he was eliminated as a suspect. Investigators began following another lead, which theorized that Sierra may have been taken by a man seen driving a van in the area where she went missing. Someone called in the van's license plate to police and reported that the driver was driving erratically. That lead, however, went nowhere. Having no other solid leads to follow, investigators began visiting homes located in the area where Sierra went missing. They eventually ended up at a home located about a mile away from the cornfield where Sierra's bike was discovered. The small home was owned by a 57-year-old man named James Worley, who lived there with his mother. A quick glance at Worley showed that he had several scratches on his arms and bruises on his legs markings that would be consistent with a struggle of some sort. While speaking with investigators, Worley told them that his motorcycle had broken down near the area where Sierra was last seen. He admitted he had been riding it the day she went missing, but it broke down. At which time, according to Worley, he began pushing the motorcycle back home through the cornfield. Worley's statements had most definitely piqued the investigators' interest but what he told them next must have solidified any intuition they had about Worley possibly being involved in Sierra's disappearance. Worley told investigators that when his motorcycle broke down, he lost his screwdriver, sunglasses, fuse boxes, and his helmet. Shockingly, every single item Worley said he lost matched items found near Sierra's bike. During their conversation, Investigators said Worley made a statement they found odd. After they questioned him about blood found on the motorcycle helmet, Worley commented that he didn't steal anything or kill anyone. This statement was out of place given that investigators never asked him about killing anyone, and this was before Sierra's body was found. All right, Ishers, I'm coming at you with another binge-worthy podcast. Crawl Space, a true crime and mystery podcast, is hosted by the creators of Missing Mara Murray. The hosts of Crawl Space, Tim and Lance, have mastered the art of deep diving into cold cases, and the results, well, they're pretty compelling. Crawl Space dives into missing persons cases like Brianna Maitland and Brandon Lawson. 
The podcast discusses the mysterious case of Suitcase Jane Doe and the Colonial Parkway murders. You'll not only hear Tim and Lance's insight into these cases, you'll hear directly from people close to the cases, as Crawlspace invites criminal psychology experts, law enforcement, and true crime media reporters onto the show to provide an even closer look at these compelling and tragic cases. Want to know how to catch a liar? Or what it's like to wear a wire and get a confession from a juror in a wrongful murder conviction? Subscribe to Crawlspace now. They've captured this experience and you can hear how it all went down. Search and subscribe to Crawlspace wherever you're listening now. Given everything they learned after speaking with Worley, police arrested him the same day they came upon his home, three days after Sierra went missing. Worley was held without bail and later charged with abduction and aggravated murder. A search of Worley's residence and DNA testing would unveil a treasure trove of disturbing evidence. At Worley's home, Sierra's blood was found on his motorcycle. Duct tape was also found to have Sierra and Worley's DNA on it. The search also yielded a ski mask, zip ties, and mace all found inside of Worley's truck. Worley had a barn on his property, and police found the most unsettling items in there. Inside the barn, investigators found a freezer, which had been dug into the ground and concealed. When the freezer was lifted out of the ground, investigators saw that it had bloodstains on it. The freezer was hidden behind some carefully placed stacks of hay, inside what appeared to be a secret room inside the barn. Inside the hidden room, there was blood on the walls. Also found during the search were journals, numerous hidden cameras around the property, maps, and countless pairs of women's underwear. The underwear, along with many other female clothing items, were found inside of Ziploc bags which had all been labeled. One of the bags was labeled Daisy Dukes. DNA tests determined that blood found on the motorcycle helmet and a pair of sunglasses found near Sierra's bike belonged to James Worley. After Sierra was reported missing, with help from the FBI, investigators pinged her cell phone and were able to determine that her phone was still in the area where she was last seen by Josh. Prior to pinging her cell phone, investigators tried tracing her location with the Fitbit she often wore, but that didn't work. The FBI was also able to determine that Worley's cell phone had been in the location where Sierra's bike was discovered. It was determined that Worley's phone was in that location for two hours the day she vanished. The investigation also uncovered that Worley had been in the area where Sierra's body was found. Perhaps even more damning were Worley's internet searches not long before Sierra's body was found. In a search of Worley's computer, investigators found searches for pornography with the terms hitchhiker, helpless, gag, rape, and hogtied. The last term was chilling given that Sierra's body was found hogtied with rope. Further digging into their primary suspect revealed to police 
that Worley had previously been convicted of abducting a woman named Robin Gardner, who was 26 years old at the time. The crime happened in 1989. Worley, who operated a landscaping business at the time, had snatched Gardner off of her bike. Gardner had been riding her bike not too far from the location where Sierra went missing. Worley hit Gardner with his vehicle and then got out and asked if she was okay. Soon after, Gardner felt a blow to the back of her head, and that's when she knew she was in trouble. Worley had hit Gardner with a screwdriver, forced her into his vehicle, then he handcuffed her. Gardner said Worley held the screwdriver to her throat and threatened to kill her. Once she was inside his vehicle, Gardner said she held onto the steering wheel as hard as she could and tried not to pass out. Just then, Gardner said a man passed by on his motorcycle. She said she flailed around as much as she could in hopes the passing motorcyclist would see that she was in trouble. Thankfully, he noticed and pulled his motorcycle over. Gardner was able to escape from Worley's vehicle and she began running over to the man who took her to a safe place to call police. Stunningly, when Gardner led police back to the scene where she had been abducted, Worley was still there. Worley told police that he wasn't trying to hurt Gardner. He said he was trying to keep her from leaving the scene of an accident, which he said she caused by cutting off his truck while she was riding her bike. Police were not buying Worley's story. He was arrested and charged for the crime. In a letter to Judge Charles Donaghy, Worley wrote, My family and myself are good, decent, and very honest people. Despite what he wrote in the letter, Worley ultimately took a plea deal for an abduction charge. The judge sentenced him to six to ten years in prison. Worley only ended up serving three years, let out for good behavior. Understandably, Gardner took the news of Sierra's death very hard, given what she'd been through with Worley back in 1989. When she learned that Sierra was missing, she immediately called police to tell them her story. The crimes were glaringly similar. Both victims were young women riding bikes alone near a cornfield during the summer. Worley assaulted Gardner with a screwdriver, and a screwdriver was found near Sierra's abandoned bike. James Worley was mandated by the court to see a therapist after he was convicted of abducting Robin Gardner. According to documents, Worley told his therapist he learned from each abduction he had done, and the next one he was going to bury. Chilling words given that Sierra was found buried. Worley's comments also alluded to more possible victims. Almost two years after Sierra's body was found, on March 12, 2018, James Worley went on trial for her abduction and murder, and he faced the death penalty if convicted. Twelve jurors and six alternates were chosen to decide his fate. Fulton County Prosecutor Scott Hazelman said in his opening statement while pointing in Worley's direction, that man sitting right there kidnapped, murdered, and buried Sierra Joggin. Hazelman also pointed out details of the crime that were odd and unknown to the public before the trial began. Hazelman said about Sierra, she was found wearing white tube socks, like the ones that are found in the crate in the North Barn. She's wearing an adult diaper 
that matches the adult diaper like the ones that were found in a crate in the North Barn. Investigators found more adult diapers at Worley's residence during their search. The prosecution first called Josh Kolosinski, Sierra's longtime boyfriend, to the stand. In his testimony, Josh said, She told me she didn't need me by her side. I gave her a kiss and we parted ways. Josh was understandably emotional on the witness stand, at times, becoming so emotional that he couldn't speak. In addition to the pictures Josh took on their ride the night Sierra disappeared, the couple also took video. One of the videos was played in court by the prosecution. Josh said on the stand that he sent a text to Sierra asking if she had arrived home safely, but he didn't receive a response. Worried, Josh called Sierra's mother, Sheila. Not long after that, Sierra was reported missing and the search began. The prosecution told jurors about all of the evidence they had collected, which linked Worley to the crime. The cell phone data showing that Worley had been at the scene of the crime for two hours. The personal items of Worley's found at the scene, some of which contained his and Sierra's blood, and the internet searches for pornography on Worley's computer, one of which used the word hogtied. The prosecution called Lucas County Deputy Coroner Dr. Cynthia Beiser to the stand. Dr. Beiser, in vivid detail, testified about Sierra's final moments and her findings during the autopsy. Given the graphic nature of Dr. Beiser's testimony, Judge Robinson recommended that Sierra's family excuse themselves from the courtroom during her testimony. Jurors were given autopsy photos to view as Dr. Beiser testified about the injuries on Sierra's left leg and the rope used to bind her body. During the autopsy, Dr. Beiser found a cut on Sierra's forehead, as well as a broken tooth in the front of her mouth and a hairline fracture in the back of her skull. Dr. Beiser described for the jury how an unknown yellow object was placed inside of Sierra's mouth and was connected to rope tied around her neck. Dr. Beiser said the yellow object could have caused the broken front tooth. The coroner said Sierra's body weighed 122 pounds and was 5 feet 4 inches tall. Under cross-exam with lead defense attorney Mark Burling, the coroner said that she was not able to determine whether Sierra was conscious as she was asphyxiated. Dr. Beiser testified that there are numerous ways in which the cut on her face and the blunt trauma to the back of her head could have occurred. She also said Sierra's body didn't show any signs of torture. Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation and Identification Agent Daniel Davidson was called to the stand. He testified about two Starfire brand tires, which were on Worley's 1995 Dodge Dakota truck. Davidson testified that those tires could have made the tracks which were seen at the location on County Road 6 and believed to be where Sierra was abducted. He said the tire tracks found at the scene were consistent with the characteristics of the tires on Worley's truck. That said, Worley's truck also had two Kelly brand tires on it, and those tires, according to the agent, were not consistent with the tire tracks found at the crime scene. BCI forensic scientist Jessica Mendofique testified regarding latent fingerprints found on Worley's motorcycle helmet. Mendofique testified that the helmet had latent fingerprints from two people. 
She said the fingerprints belonged to James Worley and Jackson Vandenbush. Jackson's father, Troy Vandenbush, saw a motorcycle helmet on County Road 6 the evening Sierra went missing. Troy asked his son to go get the helmet, which he did, and this was likely the cause of his fingerprints being on the helmet. Jackson gave the helmet to law enforcement the following day after hearing about Sierra's disappearance. Under cross-exam with defense attorney Merle Deck, Mendofique said Sierra's fingerprints were not found on the helmet. Major Matt Smithmeyer headed up the investigation into Sierra's murder. Smithmeyer testified that as a child, he lived about a half mile away from Worley's house. He said he went to Worley's property at the age of 10 to go fishing. There was a pond on the property. Smithmeyer also said on the stand that he knew Sierra's mother and stepfather. Smithmeyer discussed surveillance footage from a nearby school that showed Worley riding his motorcycle the evening Sierra went missing. Smithmeyer testified that during the time they searched the area for clues, none of the neighbors recalled seeing Worley push his broken down motorcycle down County Road 6, even though Worley said in his statements to investigators that he had pushed his motorcycle down the road that night. Smithmeyer told the court about items found on Worley's property. Among those items was a handcuff key. Also found on Worley's property, according to Smithmeyer, were two sets of handcuffs with keys attached. The handcuffs were found inside of a large tool chest in the barn located on Worley's property. Rope was found inside storage bins next to the tool chest. Smithmeyer testified that he went to some of the same porn sites Worley had visited. He said some of the videos showed women hogtied, bound, and gagged and some had ball gags in their mouths. Even worse, Smithmeyer testified that some of the porn sites depicted women being strangled and sexually assaulted. The yellow object found in Sierra's mouth, later determined to be a dog toy, served as a ball gag. Defense attorney Deck pointed out during cross-exam with Smithmeyer that the women depicted in the videos were models who were only acting out scenes. Robin Gardner, Worley's previous victim, was the last person to testify at trial. Gardner recounted on the stand her terrifying encounter with Worley during the summer of 1989. She said on the stand, He says, get in the truck or I'm going to kill you. Gardner was sitting only feet away from the man who almost killed her. She said she broke down after testifying, overcome with emotion. The defense did their best to counter all of the evidence presented by the prosecution. They claimed that items found on Worley's property, such as handcuffs and underwear, were in connection with a porn studio Worley was planning to establish. They claimed the motorcycle helmet and other items found at the scene were left behind when Worley's motorcycle broke down before Sierra went missing. Two friends of Worley's were called to the stand by the defense. Both friends had known Worley for many years. Under cross-exam, one of the friends confirmed that the helmet found at the scene was one that he purchased for Worley a few years before. Also under cross-exam, the other friend testified that he and Worley would watch porn and smoke pot together. The friend also testified that Worley told him previously that he wanted to establish a porn studio 
inside the barn on his property. At the time, according to the friend, Worley was growing pot plants. The friend also said on the stand that Worley's motorcycle had electrical issues, but it never left him stranded. It seems the prosecution was attempting to rebut Worley's claims that his motorcycle broke down the day Sierra went missing. Diabolical. Vengeance. Betrayal. Bad hair. Leaning. Hi everyone, this is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make A Date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. After their investigation into the crime, law enforcement and the prosecution believed that Worley attacked Sierra during her ride home that evening. They theorized that he may have hit her with his vehicle, as he did during the incident with Gardner in 1989. They believe Worley hit Sierra in the head with his motorcycle helmet, possibly rendering her unconscious. They think he then took her back to his barn. Law enforcement believes that once he got Sierra back to his barn, He hogtied and gagged her, and asphyxiation from the gag ultimately caused her death, at which time, Worley took her to the nearby cornfield and buried her in a grave so deep a young person could stand inside of it. After two weeks of trial, the jury deliberated for just six hours and found 58-year-old James Worley guilty of kidnapping and murdering Sierra Joggin. He was convicted on all 19 charges leveled against him, which included felonious assault, abduction, tampering with evidence, aggravated murder, murder, and abuse of a corpse. Worley was emotionless as the verdicts were read aloud. His head hung low as it was during most of the trial. Jurors then had to decide on Worley's sentence, which could be death by lethal injection. Sierra's uncle, Howard Ice, said after the verdicts were read, I want to express to you how pleased we are that justice was served today, and this murderer was found guilty on all counts. Needless to say, this has been a long four weeks. Having to sit through the detailed testimony, the piles of evidence, and the learning of what this killer and past violent offender, which is really important to us, past violent offender, did to our beautiful Sierra was gut-wrenching. On the day Worley was to be sentenced, he addressed the courtroom, giving a lengthy statement that seemed like an attempt to present his case all over again. In his statement, Worley said he was innocent and would be appealing his case. Worley said during his statement, 
I am not the guy who did this, and later said, there's more going on than meets the eye. Worley said he had a wholesome family and that his supporters are not crackpots and freaks. Worley added that the media painted him in a bad light. In a moment that surely made people's blood boil, Worley looked at Sierra's family and said, her loss is a substantial blow to everyone. Probably the most sickening part of Worley's statement was when he called Sierra a beautiful girl, which prompted members of her family to walk out of the courtroom. Sierra's aunt, Tara Ice, spoke about her niece in her impact statement. She said, The pain is excruciating and the depth of emptiness we feel is unexplainable. However, I want him to know this. It may seem that he has broken us, but we as a family are stronger than he thinks and because we were lucky enough to have had Sierra's love, we're unbreakable. Sierra's mother, Sheila, bravely spoke about her daughter standing only steps away from the man who brutally murdered her. I'm standing before you because my daughter, Sierra, was inhumanely denied the right to live out a life. Sierra was a compassionate, vibrant, and extremely driven young lady. She graduated from Evergreen High School with honors and was attending the University of Toledo, where she was on the dean's list majoring in business. Sierra had a very social side. She was very active in several campus leadership organizations. Her freshman year, she became a member of the Phi Eta Sigma. They delivered packages for mobile meals, and they also volunteered at the Boys and Girls Club. That same year, she took a position of star status coordinator for the National Society of Collegiate Scholars. This is an honors organization that recognizes and elevates high achievers. Their mission is that with scholarship comes the responsibility to provide leadership and service to the community. Sierra's sophomore year, she joined the Society of Human Resource Management and also was accepted into Alpha Kappa Psi Business Fraternity. She did all of this while keeping a 3.8 GPA and a full-time job with Wagner and Associates. These experiences and opportunities were very important to her and she consumed as much as she could, but nothing was as important as her family. Sierra made it a point to know all of the younger kids' activities, school concerts, trips to the zoo, and definitely camping trips. A 20-year-old college student with a busy social life and a work life made it a priority to spend time with her younger brother and sister, cousins, aunts, and uncles. This was a soul that embraced living and everything that it had to offer. It is hard to put into words the feelings I have experienced over the last year and nine months. The whole That will never heal in my heart. Do you need a moment, ma'am? And my family that I so cherish and am so very proud of will never be the same. I sat in this courtroom and I listened to the actions of a man who intimidated and dominated another human being. 
a man who acted out a sick and distorted scenario that he had played over and over in his mind, a man that showed no remorse for what happened to my daughter, to what my family was going through, or to what the jurors had to witness during this trial. As a mother, I should never have to explain to my 9- and 11-year-old what capital punishment is. I worry about the memories surrounding Sierra's death. My son was excited to be celebrating his birthday on July 21st, but now that is forever going to be a dark time for him. My youngest daughter was home and witnessed the utter chaos and emotional turmoil that was going on while we frantically tried to figure out what was happening. Their world was shattered, their innocence tainted by this heinous event that happened so close to home. For them, justice has been served, and the person that committed this crime is being held accountable. I, on the other hand, am not finding comfort in that he is just being held accountable. I continually ask why. Why her? Why didn't she get away? Why didn't we find her sooner? Why? For me, the death penalty is what he deserves. Toward the end of her statement, Sheila spoke about her campaign for Sierra's Law, which would implement a register for violent criminals. She wanted a registry to exist not just for sex offenders, but also for other violent offenders. After Worley's rambling statement and victim impact statements, the judge sentenced Worley to death for his crimes, saying to the convicted killer, If I thought there was a snowball's chance in hell that you were innocent, you would be looking at life, and then he banged his gavel. Worley's execution date was scheduled for June 3rd of 2019. The execution, however, was postponed due to appeals. Investigators and other experts have good reason to believe that James Worley had other victims. Charlene Cassell, a clinical psychologist who works for Court Diagnostic and Treatment Center, remarked about the evidence uncovered at Worley's home, saying it was horrific. She said it was like something you would read out of a novel on serial killers and so forth. Castle went on to say, All these pieces together seem to me to indicate Somebody who was into a serious pattern of activities, sadosexual are what comes to mind. Castle indicated that Sierra Joggin was likely not Worley's only victim. She pointed to the area being rural as one of the reasons he may have been able to commit crimes and not get caught. Castle said, I would suspect there's a possibility of other victims who either did not survive or who got away. Law enforcement believes Worley fits the profile of a serial offender, based partially on the fact that he kept journals, receipts, and video memorializing his crimes. Although the evidence points toward the likelihood of other victims, no other victims have been identified as of the current date. Prosecutors in Sierra's case believe Worley may have been responsible for the abduction and murder of 14-year-old Lori Ann Hill. Lori Ann went missing in 1985. The young girl's naked body was discovered four days later in Wasion. Prior to Worley's criminal trial, Sierra's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against him. The civil suit, filed nine months after Sierra's death, alleged that Worley was responsible for Sierra's death 
and the suit went after Worley's assets. Filing the civil suit was not for financial gain, as Worley had previously been declared indigent or extremely poor. Sierra's family only wanted to gain access to Worley's property so they could demolish it. The property represented horrible memories for Sierra's family, and understandably, they wanted it gone. Sheila's attorney for the civil suit, Jerome Phillips, said of Worley's barn, How would you like to drive by a barn where you believe your daughter was killed on a regular basis because you live in the area? You see that barn there all the time. The property is always going to be there, but to see that barn, that reminder from an emotional standpoint, was just devastating to the mother. The following year, Sierra's mother Sheila won the civil suit and was awarded a little over three acres of Worley's property and $3.6 million. Given Worley's financial state, she never expected to receive any money. Not long after he was charged with Sierra's murder, Worley transferred his property into a trust, likely in an attempt to protect it from being taken away. His efforts, however, proved futile. At the time Sheila won the civil suit, Worley's criminal case was still under appeal. This meant that Sheila could tear down the property, with the exception of the barn, where it is believed Sierra was held and murdered. The judge would not allow the barn to be demolished at the time, as it still contained evidence which may need to be used during the appeals process. Sheila, undeterred, began the process of tearing down all structures on Worley's property in November of 2018, with the exception of the barn. The house and trailer that once stood at 10627 County Road 6 in Delta, Ohio, was now gone. With its destruction, Sierra's family was one step closer to their goal of seeing all of the painful reminders that stood on the property wiped away. Sheila said of Worley's property, My family struggles with the property. We drive out of our way just so we do not have to go down that road. We still struggle when we are there. It was not the property that committed those heinous crimes against my daughter. It was a very evil and dark soul, and he is never getting out. We want to look at the property for the beauty that nature has given it. In June of 2019, Sheila finally got her wish. Three years after her daughter was murdered, Sheila was able to have the barn completely demolished. The structure that served as a dungeon for Worley to commit his heinous crimes was finally gone. Sheila admitted during an interview with ABC 13 that she felt a certain gratification in destroying Worley's property. Sheila said, I'm not going to lie, there was an emotional gratification in tearing down and burning something you loathe so much. At the time they had the property demolished, Sierra's family was considering what they could potentially do with the three-acre piece of land. There was talk of turning the property into a playground or a memorial park for Sierra. Sheila's initial plan for the property was to sell it, but she said her ideas for it changed from day to day. Sheila said about the property, I am looking to open it up and let a lot of light shine on that dark piece of land. I have received a lot of great ideas from people. I am just going with my heart and letting it lead me. We are trying to salvage anything we can, give it repurpose and meaning, 
I don't want the memory of Sierra to be what happened to her. She was a bright and beautiful person, and someday, this property will show her spirit. After her daughter's murder, Sheila Vakalik pushed legislation to pass Ohio Senate Bill 231, known as Sierra's Law. The bill, backed by Senator Randy Gardner, aimed to establish a registry of violent criminals and track their locations. The registry would assist law enforcement in reacting quicker to solve crimes. The bill would also make the information available to the public to keep them apprised of the whereabouts for anyone convicted of murder, abduction, and or voluntary manslaughter. Sheila wished she would have been aware that a man, previously convicted for abducting a woman, lived so close to her. Sheila believes it's possible that Worley would have been caught sooner and Sierra's life may have been saved had there been a registry in place. Perhaps law enforcement would have caught up with Worley sooner had they known he previously served time for abducting a woman from the area in 1989. Sierra's law eventually passed and is now mandated in the state of Ohio. The law requires certain violent criminals to provide their addresses and have them recorded on the registry for a minimum of 10 years after being released from prison. In July of this year, the fourth annual motorcycle ride in Sierra's honor took place in Ohio. The ride, called Keeping Our Girls Safe, or COGS for short, aims to raise awareness and help create a community where violence against women doesn't exist. COGS was established by Sierra's boyfriend, Josh, his mom, his sister, and Sierra's mom, Sheila. The annual ride raises money that goes towards self-defense classes for girls. The organization's mission is to keep girls safe and arm them with self-defense tools in the event they encounter a violent attacker. Justice for Sierra, a nonprofit established after her murder, was formed to educate people about Sierra's law. The organization's website, justiceforsierra.org, states, Thousands of Sierra's friends, family, and community members have come together to change the system that failed her. The website points out that Sierra was abducted and murdered by a repeat violent offender, a crime Sierra's family believes could have been prevented had a violent offender registry existed at the time of her murder. Sierra's mother explained that the name Sierra means mountains, and in her victim impact statement, Sheila said about Sierra, She has inspired people she did not know, and I can only wonder what great things she would have accomplished if she was still alive, but in her death, I know she's moving mountains. James Worley currently sits on death row at the Chillicothe Correctional Institution while his criminal case goes through the lengthy appeals process. Perhaps in the process, investigators will be able to bring justice to families of Worley's other potential victims. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways to support it. 
You can start by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which makes the show more discoverable. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by Mott & Bow, the perfect fitting jeans. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com slash murderish, where your monthly support will take you behind the mic and give you access to perks like exclusive bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. If you have any comments or questions, or if you'd like a copy of episode source material, email me at murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by me. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. listeners check out our podcast i said goddamn we're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn every sunday we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of along the way we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language listen every sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories also follow us on twitter at isgd podcast or visit our website isgdpodcast.com the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.